Hello and welcome to Learning from a Layman. Um, I am Carl Christensen, back again with Cameron Christensen. Uh, Johnny is back with us as well, Johnny Nielsen. Uh, Dr. Doctor Nielsen, or soon to be Dr. Nielsen. I'm not entirely sure when that happens. When does that happen? Yeah, they call us, uh, they, they make our titles really confusing. Some say medical student, some say student doctor. It just messes with people's minds. They don't know what you are. I'm confused. Okay. <laughs> well, that's unfortunate. You probably should be the one that knows. Um, <laughs> all right. And then we also have uh, Dr. Harper, though not the same type of doctor. Um, uh, Kate Harper, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Cam. Or thanks, Carl. Yeah. Thanks for coming. It's okay. Uh, has his doctorate. No, and, please call uh, me Dr. Just... Harper. Ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, Doctor Harper has his uh, has his doctorate in. Uh, is it just chemistry? Is there subfield? Organic chemistry. Organic chemistry. Okay, and uh, is currently working at a pharmaceutical company. And uh, so we've invited Doctor Harper on, or Cade, as uh, uh, depending on how you're related to him. Um, <laughs> to uh, discuss a little bit of the topic du jour, which is uh, the coronavirus. So uh, as layman on this subject, uh, Cameron and I are unqualified to talk about it. And there's a lot of people, uh, unqualified people discussing things uh, these days. So we thought we'd, uh, we'd uh, gear up our game and uh, talk a little bit about the chemistry of it. And then also talk to uh, Dr. Nielsen or soon to be Dr. Nielsen. Uh, about uh, doctor's advice and those types of things. So we're going to go ahead and start with uh, some questions for Cade, and uh, and we'll we'll go from there. So Cade, do you want to start with uh, discuss? Just tell us a little bit about what chemistry of a virus is, and and what what you know about that. Sure. So a virus is just a little piece of RNA or sometimes DNA, although I think most of them are RNA, at least the ones I'm familiar with. A little piece of RNA coated in proteins and sometimes wrapped in fatty lipids. So what it does is it basically attaches itself to living cells and then injects that little piece of, of DNA or RNA into the cell and hijacks the cell, cellular machinery to replicate itself. And then creating or in so doing destroys the cell and then moves on to the next host. That's, that's kind of the basic chemistry or the basic biology of a virus life cycle. So when you have different types of uh, viruses, um, what, what are the, are the, is it just different RNA sequences or what's the, what's the difference in the different viruses? That and then also the, the cells that they target. So the proteins that encapsulate the virus target different cells. Hence, like, you know, you have HIV, which is a virus that targets the immune system. Uh, versus, I believe the coronavirus is a respiratory virus, although I'm not sure. Um, okay. But also, you know, things like, um, you know, the field that I'm more familiar with is HIV, uh, hepatitis C. Those are the ones that I've seen compounds come forward on. Okay. And so the way that they target particular cells is just the protein structure? Is that the structure of so the virus? The, so most kind of antivirals that are out there, at least most of the modern HIV and uh, HCV medicines are combinations. So they attack multiple pieces of the virus life cycle. So from like, they attack RNA polymerase or different proteins that are associated with RNA replication to try to slow down that part of a viral life cycle as well as other receptors on the actual virus itself. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think about it in like a simple way um, that the virus has a key on its surface and these are different types of receptor pro proteins, but it's a key to a certain type of cell and it, and it makes that cell let it inside and it, overtakes the machinery so a specific type of protein will attach to a certain specific type of cell and that's why certain types of cells are affected by the virus and other types of cells aren't like the coronavirus mainly is respiratory and that's why people have respiratory symptoms this uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome um, 
but like when you have a viral illness that attacks the GI tract, you ha might have vomiting and diarrhea and stuff like that. So it's just the types of protein is like the key that lets it into a certain specific type of cell. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Um, that's, that's much more than I ever knew. All right. So once again, my layman status is fully intact. Um, okay. So I, I, so as far as what, uh, okay, you already started talking a little bit about the chemistry of, uh, of the, of the drugs that help, uh, what, uh, what do you do though to, to test for a particular virus? Like how can you differentiate different types of viruses? So I'm only, I'm familiar with, uh, what are known as PCR tests, so polymerase chain reactions tests. They're ones that basically take they take samples of the virus and they they upregulate or they they generate a lot of that genetic material, the RNA or the DNA inside the virus, and then it actually targets specific genes that are unique to that specific virus. So somebody has gone along and, and done sequencing of the genome of a virus and then they'll develop a test that will target specific unique genes on the virus and then upregulate those and then then you'll that's basically how they test or one of the tests I, I think there's another type out there that's like blood based that i've heard about in the news but i don't know anything about that it has to do with how the the immune system responds to the virus but honestly i, I don't know much more than that okay um, yeah, you can I've... test for antibodies against the virus because the immune system will start to produce antibodies against the virus. And an antibody basically attacks foreign substances in your body. So if something's not supposed to be there, <clears throat> the immune system will make an antibody against it that will attack it. Um, the antibodies... Uh, there's different types of antibodies, and so you can figure out uh, basically what stage of the viral illness somebody's in based on the titers or the amount of antibodies that are in the uh, that are within the blood. So that's another way that they do it. But PCR is uh, poly uh, polymerase chain reaction is one of the easiest ways to think about. They basically just are looking for is this DNA there or is this RNA there or is it not? And if it's there, then the virus is there. And if it's not there, then the virus is not there. Okay. Have you given those tests before, Johnny? Have you done viral tests on, on patients? No, I haven't done a viral test on any patients. Medical students are not allowed to have any patient contact with someone suspected of coronavirus. Okay. Yeah. And Kate, is that so? Does your company does it? Do they produce um, uh, tests for the for viruses? Or uh, I know that they do. You do, you do uh, drugs that that work on on viruses, right? Yeah, we have. Yeah, we have a couple of products uh, that are in the hepatitis C and, and HIV realms. But uh, to my knowledge, we don't do anything in terms of testing. Okay. Um, so as far as uh, the coronavirus specifically goes, I've, I've read stuff and uh, that indicate that there are some drugs that will, will work with, um, that at least might start against fighting viruses um how does that work from a chemical point of view first i guess so what what do drugs in order to to, to stop the progress of a virus how can they stop that replication process so yeah basically what when you're trying to drug or develop an antiviral you're trying to stop some part of the virus life cycle so whether it's cellular adhesion or the replication, once it hijacks the cell to slow down DNA or RNA replication within the cell or, or specific to the to the virus, you're targeting a different piece of the, of the virus life cycle. And the most effective drugs that are out there target multiple pieces, like uh, okay. largely AIDS, okay. hepatitis C has been cured. That kind of double or triple therapy where there's two or three drugs together in a cocktail that when given attack the, the virus at all of its different 
or at all the different parts of its life cycle. So, but again, the drug is, it's kind of like uh, Johnny's analogy. Drugs, you, you develop that, you develop a drug that's sensitive or uh, it's a lock and key type uh, relationship where drugs fit into those spaces or interrupt the, the parts where the virus molecules are interacting. So the drug takes the place of the virus or blocks the virus from, from doing its uh, business inside the cells and then inhibits it and then the virus just eventually dies out. Does that make any sense, Carl? Yeah, yeah that does. Um, so how... I feel like um, I, I kind of understand how that works as far as though what it does, what, what you need to do in order to produce drugs. Like what is the uh, procedure in order to create the drugs that fight the, fight okay. the virus? So the way that the drug product life cycle goes is usually you identify a target. So something, I mean, even getting outside of just thinking about viruses, but you find something novel about any disease some enzyme or some protein or some part of the disease that you can target that will hurt the disease without killing the patient. Is, is that kind of your motto at, uh, at your work? <laughs> it's, not that, it's not that eloquent, but it's close. <laughs> they need to, they need to have you yeah. No, so that's the idea. Is basically you're just trying to, to kill the disease before you you kill the person with the disease. Um, so then, what? Oh, go ahead, Carl. Okay, so what is the the time frame involved in developing a drug? So you mentioned some of the steps to develop a drug. How long does it take to yeah. uh, if you've identified a new virus? Like, what is what does that to take? start from scratch, so you, you do target identification, that's kind of an open-ended problem. But once you have that, then you develop a molecular series that is specific to that, but doesn't harm any other cellular pathway in the body. Or if it does, its effects are small compared to the gains from blocking the, the negative or the disease state. So then the idea from what target or from identification of an actual molecule to development, then you need to start testing it in animals. So once you determine that it's specific, you start testing in animals for both safety and for efficacy. So hopefully you've also simultaneously developed some type of animal model of the disease state or some animal readout to make sure that you're, what you think you're doing in kind of this, in the enzyme world or whatever, some target specific protein binding, things like that, that that translates to actual real cells and real organs and real mammals. So then you do the animal models studies, you do the safety studies, then we usually progress up from smaller animals to larger animals. So from say mice to dogs, sometimes to monkeys, we test the safety of, of the molecules comprehensively. We, we look at their carcinogenicity, toxicity, and then we start development. So that would identify the candidate. And then once we have a t candidate drug, we bring it forward in development where we start to put it into humans in very limited amounts with high kind of usually with a lot of scrutiny in what we call phase one studies. And then after that, we move on to phase two, where phase one is usually just looking at safety and, and phase two starts to think about efficacy and is it treating the disease and how good is it treating? What are the side effects? And those are smaller studies, uh, could be anywhere from tens to hundreds of patients. And then you graduate onto a phase three study, which goes to hundreds to, to even thousands of patients. So each one of those takes a certain amount of time. So really the life cycle of a drug from target identification is typically 10 years um, to bring it to market. And then once wow. it's on market, it usually has about a 10 year patent lifetime depending on the drug class and, and different factors. Okay. And that's so where the company recoups all of the money invested in the testing and development. That's where pharma gets a, a bad name because we charge a lot for medicines that really don't cost as much to produce, but we have to pay back all those R&D costs. So. Mm -hmm. And something so it, else that I... you don't think about is let's say they have they're they're trying to develop a drug to some disease 
and they have 10 in development, but then nine don't pan out, they've still put all that research and all that money into that and they have to recoup it some way. So the one that hits the market is the one that they have to use to regain the amount that they spend. Anyway, something else to think about that I didn't think about until medical school. So you guys are telling me that Big Pharma isn't all just demons out to milk everyone dry. Oh, they are. Most of the people I work with, I honestly believe, are trying to do the right thing. Even up to the the CEOs of companies, I think most of them are invested in doing the right thing and not making an easy buck. And you you just get some... Oh, sorry. Go for a minute. No, I, I just wanted to ask a follow-up question, but go ahead and ask yours first. Oh, I was just going to bring up, I, I think every once in a while you get a kind of bad actor like, um, what was his name? The Pharma Bro guy. Martin Screlly. Yeah, there you go. And kind of gives a, gives a bad name to the whole industry, right? Yeah, uh, and it's important to note that there's pharmaceutical companies out there that don't do original R&D. Oh, okay. So when you say big pharma, you're talking about big brands that you recognize and they usually have commercials and stuff like that. But he actually, there's a lot of pharmaceutical companies that operate in the generic space or in the orphan drug space. And that's where a lot of the headlines that you've read, Tim, have come up from. Is these, these pharma companies don't have an R&D investment. They usually hmm. buy compounds right and then they jack up the price to put the squeeze on, on the, the consumer. They're more like like merchants looking to kind of fi- find a deal and see if they can then yeah. in they're, play they're the middle. Exploit- yeah, exactly. They're just exploiting markets. Uh huh. Speculators. Okay. So, if I can ask a question related to this, are there things that could be done that would reduce the costs of uh, you know drug and especially vaccine development that would result in a notable decrease in cost to the end user? I mean, given the timelines that you talked about, there is a lot of dollars that has to go into that. Is there something that could be reasonably done either by the government or whatever regulatory agency that would reduce costs or, or make them not so high? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a balance, right? So a lot of the, the costs in the trials and things like that are to, to guarantee safety right so safety first um and that's where the bulk of the cost is is to prove safety and then to prove efficacy so that we're not just creating placebos or you know creating a bunch of pills with different chemical compounds in them that really don't do anything so to bring a a drug to the fda you have to proven that it works better than any other drug out there that's comparable for a specific disease so it's, it's almost kind of a, a risk acceptance. And in the way that we've set up our acceptable level of risk, these are the costs that go with it. If we want to reduce costs, we're going to have to consciously decide that, yeah, we're going to take an increased risk of having ineffective or harmful drugs out there. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it's been a hundred year learning curve on that. And I, I wouldn't say that we're at the steady state yet. We're still still learning and things happen and we we pull back or things get loosened and and people take advantage so yeah there's still a lot of volatility there i won't say that we're at the the perfect point but that's where we are now is at that 10-year cycle but in terms of shortening the time and increasing the likelihood of success that's that's the business that we're in i mean that's being driven by the market so Companies like mine and others invest huge amounts into AI, into combinatorial screens, lots of compounds, libraries of compounds, all kinds of really cool technologies to try to shorten the time of development and improve that safety and unique and uh, window. Yeah. If we can bring, because honestly, if you're the first one to market, you usually win. Well, I wanted to ask another kind of related question. You mentioned it takes forever to, well, not forever, 10 years or so uh, from initiation to market for these things. But there are some vaccines that come out annually, like the flu shot that I'm required to get that I hate so much. 
Um, <laughs> what's, what, what's the difference there with your seasonal flu shot vaccine versus, uh, you know, the, the extended 10-year developments that we've been talking about? So I honestly don't know a lot of what goes into vaccine development. I could speak more to the drugs, but the vaccines themselves are it's typically biological material, right, Johnny? So Yeah, they can so vaccines are a little bit easier to make because you just make a mimic of what the virus or disease is that you're trying to fight against. You expose your body to it. It's not harmful to your body in any way because um, it can't replicate like a normal virus can. And so uh, you give this vaccine, your body has a reaction to it and creates uh, memory cells that will remember um, that vaccine, or sorry, that will remember that structure once it sees it again and launch a full attack against that foreign body. So let's let, we're talking about viruses, so it attacks the virus. So vaccines are relatively easier to produce than um, like a drug. So this is important for the layman like me who doesn't know these things, that there is a difference between vaccine production and drug production. That's why this, this when, you're, so educational. when you're hearing about things out there, Matt, the, the vaccine timelines are significantly abbreviated, right? Because they, they do a much simpl much more simplified trial and the standards for efficacy are, are much lower. Where, cool. Whereas the drugs that you're hearing about for treatment are usually ones that are already commercialized. And most of the ones that I've heard about are generic with a couple of exceptions. So they're already off patent. Um, so companies like mine and most of the major pharmas don't really dabble too much in the generics because it's too much of a, the margins are too low there. Okay, so that's, and that's what I was going to bring us back to. Is so the coronavirus, when I've been doing the reading about the, the drugs that they're looking at uh, using might be effective against it, those are ones that have already been developed and deployed in uh, uh, for other other uses and that they're just finding that they are also effective against the virus, right? Yeah. So they're, they already know a lot about how they behave in humans, that they're safe, what the side effects might be so that you can be a little bit more, uh, or you don't have to exercise the same caution in deploying those drugs. You can if effectively instigate a, a clinical trial really quickly. So yeah. along those and lines, Oh, I'm sorry. Um, viruses are so. Oh, now I lost my thought. But basically, um, the, you are interrupting um, the virus in certain type of its life cycle, and each type of virus has a different type of life cycle depending on if it has DNA or RNA or um, if it's positive DNA, negative. RNA, it all, it all changes how the virus replicates. And so if they know how the virus, what type of virus it is, they already have developed drugs that will be effective against that type of virus just because of the nature of the virus and how it replicates. So then they can take uh, medications they already have and try them um, against, you know, the the risk like the uh, COVID-19, for example. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask about. So thanks, Johnny. So, Kate, how often the first thing that you do is you identify a target. Uh, how often when you identify a target, do you, do you find you, that there already exists a drug that that uh, work against that? Or is that not part of that? that? So in original R&D, we, we operate away from that because we're trying to get to new patent space. So we want to make something that's also patentable. So uh, beyond that, I couldn't really say too much about. Okay, so as far as the uh, the different companies, the different pharma companies that create drugs, um, you said that obviously falls out of patent. You don't get really your ROI anymore, so you just kind of move on from it, right? Yeah, I mean, even I, I don't I don't know if there's an answer for that question. If we, I don't think we typically look 
for existing drugs to to hit the targets. People right. outside of of companies trying to make money probably do. Like the NIH studies things like that. I know, and and academics will study things like that. But but we were interested in generating new IP so that we can patent it and protect it and then develop it. But, so I, I mean, know. So I was going to say in this. I mean, this is a unique case, the coronavirus and the worldwide uh, pandemic and everything. But uh, if, let's say another agency did find out that one of the drugs under a patent by your company was effective in treating this demic. Uh, what would be the do you, is there any type of like uh, recourse that they'd have to get, you know, the supplies from your company or how, how would that go? Do you have any idea? Oh, that's an interesting scenario. I only can speak in that hypothetical or within that hypothetical. What we, I mean, obviously, we'd be designed or whatever we'd done would be designed for patient student population. So we, we kind of know during the development process how many patients there might be, what our market share might be. So we have an idea of how much we want to produce when we launch a drug and what the kind of expectations will be in the uptake. Uh, but in this case, you'd basically be going from zero to full throttle. So I don't know if any particular company could handle that kind of a ramp up. Uh, I think a lot of people would have to pitch in together or that some somebody would have to figure out a way to get that done such that uh, you could generate enough material for as many people as have been affected or will right. be affected by the coronavirus. Right. So it's an interesting question. I don't know if I have the answer for it in terms of chemical or capacity, but I think, you know, thinking of the major pharma companies, I don't know if anybody owns enough pots to make that much material that fast okay. to, to, to hit the demand. So, right. but okay. at, at the same yeah, time, goodness like, sakes, they can't even make enough toilet paper right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. But yeah, so there'd still be a lag time there, Carl, certainly. Well, because any synthesis like that takes time. I mean, I think one of our, our hepatitis drugs is like 40 steps. And if you Roughly, say, one step per week, right? It takes almost a year total to make from from raw commodity chemicals to the refined pharmaceutical product. Wow, okay. So oh, yeah. that, that was one of my questions. It was going to be, like, what what is the timeline? Even if you could ramp up, even if you produce enough, if what, you know, different drugs I have, I'd imagine have different timelines for how long they take to actually produce them. I mean, them. If, if they found that magic pill and... We know what we had to do. I think probably the government would step in. Um, I'm sure the company would be rewarded, but uh, I'm I'm sure certain the government would have to step in and, and do like an eminent domain type scenario. I, I don't know. That gets into some stuff. I have no idea, but that's where my imagination goes. Is that okay. it'd have to be a collective effort to get that material made in mm -hmm. order to have an effect in short order to try to quell what what's happening now but theoretically i think it would be possible okay and just so and just so to clarify for the audience um the, he's talking about drugs that you're making de, de novo like new drugs and you're synthesizing them with small chemicals um small carbon chains and different compounds to make a new drug but a lot of the medicines that we use out there are things that we have found in nature that we get from plants and stuff like that. So this is a, if you have a drug that you've purified from some type of plant or something like that, then the process would obviously be a little bit different and might be a little bit easier or harder in certain types of ways. Anyway. Yeah. So like, I think the drug I've heard the most about is chloroquine. I was reading about that today, that they did some really preliminary trials in France on that, and it seemed to be efficacious. But that, in comparison to a lot of the medicines that we produce now for cancer or for other diseases, is very simple um, and only would require a handful of chemical steps, if that, from basic chem commodity chemicals, stuff that you can buy in rail cars. 
And it depends on what the efficacious dose is. See, some medicines are, take five megs per day. Others take 100 or, or 200 milligrams per day. Um, so, you know, that's a 20, 20-fold difference between, you know, so if it took one ton at five megs per day, it's going to take 20 tons at 200 megs per day to, to okay. satiate the world. Right. So what, as far as like how much dosage is necessary in order to, to kill a virus, uh, is that dependent on the type of virus or the, I mean, how does that work? So that's one of the things that they, they arrive at from the clinical trials. So you have what's known as a therapeutic um, window or a therapeutic index, I think is the technical term for it. So, you know, everything, if you eat too much of it can kill you, right? So even table salt, if you eat too much of it, can kill you. So it's it's the amount where you get a, a positive response versus the amount that will kill you is what they call the therapeutic window or the therapeutic index. And so they got to arrive at what that window looks like, what can be done safely, and then that helps to drive the dosing as well as the response. And, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a number of different variables that go in the equation that that arrives at the dose number. Okay. Yeah. Also, how fast you clear the drug from your system is a big thing that goes into that as well. Yeah. If you clear the drug really fast, you'll need a bigger dose to keep it at a dose that's efficacious. Okay. Awesome. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's really good insight. Um, I'm going to move slightly slightly change topics more to. to um, specifically the situation that's gripping the world right now, which is, you know, this uh, pandemic, uh, and ask a little bit about um, what happens. So this is be more directed at Johnny now. What what happens when a hospital doesn't have room for a patient? Well, I mean, you can read about it and uh, about what's happening in Italy. Um, I think it is where the people that they don't think are going to survive or to have no chance of survival aren't getting admitted into the hospital. It's really sad, but it's that's just what happens. And the way that, you know, if we didn't do anything, the way that this virus spreads is so quick and so fast that there will not be hospital beds for everybody that will need them. Um, there's just there just won't be. And so they start to uh, double up on in rooms and uh, try to do different things to make room. I know a city in China built their own hospital um, so that they could just have another set of rooms to help uh, help patients that are recovering from the virus. Um, but yeah, that's one of the biggest problems. That, I mean, yeah, it is a deadly virus. It can kill people. Um, just like the flu can. Um, but the problem is, is that it's unexpected and it's spreading so quickly that the hospital will run out of beds. And, and so that's one of the biggest issues is that the healthcare system isn't equipped to handle this increase in patients that will be coming to the hospital if nothing changed. I actually know a little about this. They've actually been contacting... Um hotels and are looking to use um, elementary schools and other things like that that aren't actually being used right now to actually house patients and stuff. So oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting, Cameron. Yeah. I Well, we got to make some money somehow. So we're... <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, actually, I was going to come to you in just a minute, Cameron, but... Uh, so Johnny, other other question. I know I've seen I've read about this as well. Uh, medical professionals are, are in huge risk as far as what I've been able to tell with this because it's so contagious. Uh, in general, though, outside of just the coronavirus, how often do doctors, nurses, do they get actually ex sick from exposure by a patient, and and is that something that's pretty common? It's it's extremely common. Um, so even as medical students, we would on our pediatric rotation where we were with kids all day, um, it was just expected that in the two months that you were doing that, that you were going to get some type of illness, uh, you know, either like 
throwing up, vomiting, or like a common cold uh, was the, the main types of things. But it, it happens fairly often. Uh, but a lot of times in healthcare, you can't really take a sick day. So you protect yourself, protect the patients against you by wearing a mask or uh, doing other types of things to make sure that the patients are still getting good care. But at the same time, you're not spreading the disease to them. Um, in some cases, you do have to stay home and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, healthcare workers do get sick. Uh, I would say an increased rate than the general population. Right. Okay. Uh, it seems like a yeah hazard that comes with a job. This almost unavoidable. But, um, what do you do? So I don't. Obviously, you're not currently a full time doctor, but um, in general, I you get a lot of people coming in for things that they don't necessarily come to see a doctor about, right? Uh, especially, I'd imagine in a scenario like this where everyone's panicked about lots of things, uh, you're going to get a lot of people reporting false positives. Uh, is there any general advice you have for people when they should contact the doctor versus shouldn't? Uh, yeah, I mean, that there is a sense that I need to go to the doctor when there is a, you know, like, for example, the toilet paper thing. There's been enough toilet paper for everybody in the United States for years and years and years, and now you can't find it on the shelf. Why is that? It's because people panicked. Um, and it's the same type of thing with healthcare. When there's a panic like this about the virus, you're going to see an increased amount of people coming to the uh, to the emergency room for the common cold that are, are worried that they might have the coronavirus. Um, so there's some specific symptoms that you should look for with the coronavirus. Uh, one of them is a cough, a really bad cough and a fever. And if somebody is struggling to breathe, if you're having a problems trying to catch your breath, that's a good sign that you should be, that you should go to the hospital and be tested. But the the flu is more will give you more like a really bad fever, hit you really quick, make you feel like you got hit by a truck, and um, and you you basically will feel really weak for quite a while. The coronavirus is more of an insidious onset and people can go up to 10 days having the virus without showing any symptoms and then start to show symptoms of having the virus and during that time they can be spreading the virus so you have to be very careful during this time because the virus can be spread so easily because people can spread it while they're not having symptoms they still have it but the main thing is the cough and then sometimes a fever but if you're feeling short of breath especially if you have diseases like asthma or COPD, uh, that would definitely be reason to take a trip to the emergency room. Johnny, what's COPD? Um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Okay. You would know if you had it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not sure. All right. Okay. Thanks, Johnny. Okay, so... Then, so what I'd like to do really quick then with everyone on, and we've got a bunch of, from lots of different professions here on the call, I'd like, I mean, everyone's been affected by this in some way or another. Um, I'd like to just have everyone kind of talk about what the differences are that have happened in their fields and or their their areas. And uh, I'll start with, okay, what, so what have, what work-wise, like what your company-wise, what what's changed in the last week? What are what's happening different? So in the past week, uh, they started peeling people back. Basically, anybody who wasn't doing active lab work was asked to start to work from home. And then they said, pass it out to a bunch more people who weren't who were doing active. And then finally today, everybody but those on projects deemed most critical has been asked basically not to come in until mid to late April for now. So I packed, I've been able to get in. It's been nice and quiet in the lab. Scientists are really good at social distance anyway. <laughs> it's, been, it's been nice to get some work done, but now I packed up my desk, took my monitors home, and I'm going to be working from home for the next who knows how long, which 
you know, as a chemist, most of my time is spent on the bench. I can't actually work from home. So development on a number of projects is effectively stopped. Well, we, we can't do the chemistry. We can, we can maybe work with partners that we work with in China and other places, but everybody's kind of affected by this. So all development is, is slowed down. Yeah, so this is one of those things where I feel like I understand the precautions being taken, um, but like this is one of those uh, downstream effects that maybe aren't as foreseeable. So the drugs that you're developing to help people with, you know, other health issues are not being developed right now because you guys can't go in and work on them, right? Yep. I, I mean, we. that's the nice thing about it is it won't impact the bottom line immediately, and hopefully we can try to as we recover from this, we'll accelerate different things and we'll, it'll get spread out a little bit more evenly. It won't come like, uh, you know, uh, a janitor that's no longer asked to come in where they're getting paid hourly and suddenly their, their income stops. But yeah, that, I think that'll get buffered out over time, which is a nice side benefit from it all. But yeah, I'm interested to see. I, I've got enough things stacked up for a week. But after that, I'm going to be hard pressed to find an eight hour day. In it. And I think to be on my bosses have all said, you know, we, we don't expect you to be as productive at home. You can't be. So expectations are, are going down. But it'll be interesting to see if this holds on and for how long what the asks will be. Have you heard of this thing called online video games to fill up your time? <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have honestly, so we haven't, we don't have a gaming machine outside of the Wii, Matt, but I have honestly contemplated getting a Switch and <laughs> my wife and I for the family. So there it's a go. lot of hours pent up indoors and the weather yeah. isn't exactly beautiful here in Northern Illinois right now. So <laughs> right. I remember that weather. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, uh, thanks, Kate. Johnny, uh, you are kind of in a kind of in a slow spot as far as actual work goes, right? Generally, but what's what's the effect been on you? Yeah. So, um, as a student, uh, they canceled a lot of our classes. Uh, they also so I. In medical school, the biggest day of medical school is when you find out where you're going for residency. And they usually have like a big ceremony. They do things every single night for the whole week to celebrate that. Well, that's this week and we're all at home doing nothing. Uh, so they canceled all the celebrations. They canceled everything. Um, and it's it's pretty, it's pretty disappointing. Um, but at the same time, we have to set an example to the rest of the community. We can't say oh, doctors are really worried about this virus and then get 180 students together <laughs> for a <laughs> ceremony and, uh, you know, and everyone brings their grandma. That would not be good. Um, so <laughs> anyway, uh, so it's been very disappointing in that in that sense. I was also supposed to be on a rotation right now where I was at the pediatric ICU. I was really looking forward to it, uh, to spending some time there, but they wouldn't allow me to do it. And so I, I get to read about coronavirus and talk about its effect on the pediatric ICU instead. So something that I don't and the podcast. love, after, <laughs> something that I don't love uh, is after so much school is doing busy schoolwork like that. I would rather be with patients and learning face to face. So it, it, it's really affected a lot of people, a lot of students. And my wife even showed me a, a note that a little girl had written that said, thanks coronavirus for ruining my birthday. Uh, so I think it's really affecting everybody socially, you know? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a bummer. So, um, Okay, let's move on to, uh, let's go to Tim next. What school, schools have been closed. What are you doing, Tim? Well, uh, <clears throat> so my routine right now. Has... I do every summer, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> Plot to, yeah, that's right, to corrupt the youth of Athens. No, um, schools are, in my district in particular, we, we have a two-week spring break, and that's what we've been on for the past week and a half, so as far as how, you know, nothing has changed yet. 
but um, Arizona has the Arizona state government announced a school-wide shutdown until basically the end of March, um, which means that next week when we're supposed to go back to school, we won't. And other school districts have already had that they're just shut down. Uh, so for teachers, that means we're not going to work and um, districts are coping in different ways. A lot of districts are experimenting and kind of pushing out online learning <clears throat> where it's possible to kind of try to, you know, we, we've got uh, one quarter of the year left and I think districts are hoping to kind of patch that quarter together with online learning and then, um, you know, hope that things uh, resolved by the summertime and we can get back to normal next year. But each, each district is kind of going at its own um, rate with that. Um, I think the, I mean, so that's big news for us teachers. I think the, the big deal as far as the bigger picture is for, um, you know, working parents, you know, what they're going to do to, you know, to, to deal with, because now they have to find a place and a way to, you know, get their kids cared for. One of the concerns that the, the state government had and was considering before announcing a shutdown was that, well, if we shut down schools so that we don't aggregate, you know, have a bunch of kids gathered in one place, well, people are going to have to look for daycare and other things and kids are going to, you know, be grouped together there. So you, you lose or you lose. Um, so I think a lot of people are trying to figure that out. It's just disruption. That's probably one word for it. Yeah. Tim, I have a question. For places like I've heard in Ohio, I think they said they're just shutting down school for the rest of the year. What's the advantage to that? When nobody knows really what the future holds, you know, this thing could play out quickly or could drag on. What's the advantage of saying school's out? Well, I I think that the, the impression I get is that they're hoping that... I think that kids are a pretty, I mean, well, I don't know. I I don't know much about transmission of of disease and so forth. I do know that teachers, kind of like John was talking about with with, um, doctors, teachers are are known for being sick. (laughs) You know, if, if you haven't taught and then you start teaching, you can plan on getting a few nasty bugs as you kind of dip into the microbe cream that flows through schools. So I, I think the big thing is they're just hoping to, to shut that down. Um, and then, yeah, I, they're just saying we're going to, they, they know they need to close it down for the next while, the social distancing. And at that point, you know, if, if we're shut down for three or four weeks, then by the time we start back again, you know, it's summertime, it's the end of the scheduled school year. So we're just going to, going to cancel it. I think that's their mindset. Um, is that what you were asking? Yeah, basically. I was just wondering, you know, what's the purpose of calling it now? Like, thankfully, right now, our schools are saying a couple of weeks, and maybe they'll extend another week or two, but we'll keep playing it by ear. Nobody's wholesale saying school's out for summer right now. Yeah, and I, I think the ones that are probably part of what they're doing, I, I imagine that policymakers are scrambling to some degree. One, out of a, a sincere desire to do the right thing and help out. But I think there's also a, a little bit of, you don't want to be the one who looks like they're napping while the world burns, you know? Yeah. And so you, you take, you take decisive action and, and you hope it works and, and you hope you don't look like the goat at the end. Um, but, but yeah, I, I don't know. That is a good question. I, I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, if, if uh, we were closed through the end of the school year. Do you know, okay, do you know if Ohio was doing, if they're doing like online or if they're just totally shut down? That's the thing that just occurred to me as you're talking is maybe they've said that schools are shut down, but maybe they're not terminating classwork. Maybe they're just saying we're, we're going all in on, on the online for the rest of the year. I don't know that. Maybe that's what they were, what they've been up to. I will say that. universities have done anyway but I, oh, i'm yeah. sure it's harder to do it well the universities have already been doing online classes so they have the infrastructure to be able to do that whereas elementary um, education it's going to be a lot 
more difficult to do that. So anyway. And a lot of online businesses are, I've been getting emails and notifications about, ooh, try, you know, try our online course, blah, blah, blah. Um, everyone's, they, they see where the wind's blowing in a lot of these companies that, that service online communication or learning platforms are, are kind of rolling everything out to try to meet that demand and, and um, get, get part of that share of the market. No. So, uh, Tim, do you know what the your school district maybe in particular is? Because I know it's a big concern with a lot of people, um, a lot of school districts out there, the underprivileged kids. It's sometimes like the only meals they're getting at home and stuff. Do you know how they're trying to combat that and such? Yeah. Um, so my school district, they, they put out on their website, you know, little um, just kind of updates and so forth. And, and that's one of the one of the first updates you get is on the on the free and reduced meal plans, which uh, even though school is currently um, out of commission, they are still um, serving those kids and and giving those meals. I, I don't know any details about it. I would imagine that they're they're doing some kind of takeout thing, you know, so everyone just picks it up kind of like, you know, with restaurants, you're not allowed to, you know, on, only take out so but they are still serving that need. And I, I think if, you know, depending on how crazy and, and shut down things get, that would be one of the last things to shut down because yeah, that a lot of people don't realize that, that schools aside from, you know, obviously public education also serve as kind of a, a shock absorber for, yeah, a lot of underprivileged kids who maybe aren't, aren't getting enough food to eat and so forth. They, they can get one or two meals at school. So, that's a good question. Anyways, Thanks, yeah, Cameron. still going on. Okay. Uh, let me move to Cameron. Cameron, you already mentioned a little bit of what's happening in the hospitality industry. What, uh, what other things are happening? So um, we're getting hit pretty good when you tell everybody to stay home and not travel. Um, <laughs> that's kind of based on what my industry is all about. So um lately because of the uh, border closing in canada we've been getting a lot of canadians coming through to go back to the um to their country but yeah so do you is, i mean is essentially it so what was that tim oh sorry i was just gonna say that that will dry up pretty shortly i presume yes so i mean we're talking about canadians like are everywhere you'll never get rid of them all <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about a, a we don't need a Canadian right. bacon situation going on right now, man. <laughs> what, what percentage? Are we, talking? Are we talking like you're seeing like one or room filled, uh, two rooms filled? I mean, what are you? What? Um, typically, right now for my hotel, we'd probably be um, between the seventy to eighty percent full, and we're struggling to get to forty percent. Okay. So, uh, like yeah. How many layoffs? Have, I mean, we're talking layoffs. We're talking those types of things. Yeah. So lots of uh, layoffs um, because of restaurants closing and stuff like that. Um, we had to lay off all our breakfast staff because we're no longer allowed to do breakfast. Um, so that was a fun thing I got to do for the first time was uh, lay off three people. That is never a fun thing to do in your job. Um, so yeah, we, we, we're reducing our hours, our, our management team is required to work more at the front desk now just to limit it people. Um, now if any of our employees get sick, we have to take it much more seriously than we had to before. Um, so I'm pulling a couple extra duties, um, because of that, actually one of my employees is sick and we're waiting on some test results to come back for tomorrow to see if he is oh. gone for a longer time or not so ooh, so much fun right well good luck with that so yeah um, and yeah like what i was talking before we're all the businesses are trying to find other things so a lot of companies are doing isolation protocols for their people and so we're trying to get on those type of businesses where um, they'll just send their entire team to a hotel. They stay there for 
basically a week to two weeks and make sure they're all clear with no symptoms and then they go back to work. So. Okay. Um, all right, Matt, what's, uh, what's going on in your, uh, your neck of the woods? Well, uh, uh, the, the industry that I'm part of doesn't really ever get to take a break no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, right. that said, we have instituted some changes to minimize the amount of people in the office at a given day. So right now they've, uh, basically essential personnel are told to telework. Um, I'm lucky in, or unlucky in that that's, that's not me. I'm, I'm essential. So I get to go into the office. Um, but yeah, the great difference that I've noticed is that because there are fewer people in the office, I get a lot more work done. It's amazing. <laughs> just like Kate. <laughs> just sit there and have productivity and without distraction. It's, it's, Guessing Actually, your commute cool. is also well, my commute is actually. outstanding. I went from <laughs> a hour to an hour and a half drive, uh, one way to about twenty minutes, and it's amazing. <laughs> wow. it's, it's like heavy traffic anywhere else in the world, but it's heavy traffic that moves at or near the speed limit. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the really bad part is well, I mean, there's lots of really bad parts. Uh, to pick one comparatively minor annoyance it's harder to get lunch uh now (laughs) it's harder to find a place to to pick up whatever (laughs) so yeah that's that's the thing and and i'm seeing similar things all over the place even essential services and entities are going to minimum manning um and yeah there's half or less of the cars on the road than you normally see Right. Now, before yeah. you guys congratulate yourselves too much about your increased productivity, I just want to note that if I didn't have my students in my classroom, I'd get a lot more done too. <laughs> <laughs> By definition, that uh, you're not getting anything done, Tim. Uh, what, 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 are, what, what are we paying you for? Isn't your productivity defined as children learning stuff? <laughs> I guess I've got to go back and reconsider here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so that leaves me, um, my industry, I'm the software industry, so um, essentially nothing's changed. I clean, I clean my keyboard and mouse more often. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I worked from home before, and so I work from home now, and that hasn't changed. But what has actually changed, so my company uh, kicked everyone out of our office and said, you must work from home. Uh, which doesn't isn't that big of a deal for our, our the R and D department in my company, but for the sales staff or the marketing or those types of people, that was a big change. Um, so they had to do some infrastructure uh, updates in order to handle that. But uh, as a software company, we were pretty well equipped to handle the type of situation, and uh, it really hasn't been a huge, other than just the g- general economic shocks uh, everyone's feeling. Um, really hasn't affected us too much. Um, but personally, I was going to go to Taiwan uh, tomorrow, or no, in two weeks. And as you can imagine, that is no longer going to happen. And the, the, uh, the timeline of that was interesting because weeks ago, when I was telling people I'm going to go to Taiwan, it, it, people were saying, I can't believe you're going to go to Taiwan. It's, you know, you're going to catch coronavirus there. And, and at the time, coronavirus was actually still pretty well contained in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. But the concern was... Well, Taiwan's dirty, you know. Um, that uh, that that flipped real quick, and now t- uh, Taiwan's closed its borders, and you actually can't go in unless you're Taiwanese. So um, obviously, uh, that's out of the question now. But that's because the United States uh, has you know thousands of cases. So um, yeah, I think that reveals that's... a bit of our American kind of bias you know we we just presume you know as the world's largest economy and some of these things that we're oh we're the safest place to be we're the best equipped to do but we uh something like coronavirus teaches us real quick that maybe we uh are um a little too full of ourselves yeah just certainly just, uh, brought- just so y'all know i was there during their mass epidemic start guess what no runs on toilet paper there i'm just saying <laughs> They 
kept all their grocery stores stocked and they didn't have any issues and everyone just kept their heads. So huh. maybe there's a little something wrong with the U.S. here. Yeah, the uh, the bag mentality is just a U.S. type of uh, problem then? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say the media creates mass hysteria. Certainly doesn't help. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much it for our podcast tonight. Uh, I really appreciate Dr. Harper and Dr. Nielsen for their insights. And uh, that'll do. Student Dr. Nielsen. <laughs> Soon to be Dr. Nielsen. Whatever. I don't know when to start saying it. So I have to give you title. The technical term is junior doctor apprentice. <laughs> I like it. Jedi Knight Nielsen. Padawan. Would you call me Headmaster Cox? No. I will not. No. No, no one would ever call you. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, and we will talk to you guys uh, next time.